You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, all. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. Uh, Delighted to have you with us as we engaged with this story today. Now, I have a question, and it is, I think, relevant to our pastors today. Uh, And you can participate by raising your hand if you feel led to, okay? Uh, Who in here loves a good murder drama? Okay, it's okay. It's okay to say yes, all right? We literally just announced we're doing a murder mystery dinner in a few weeks, okay? It's all right to say that you love murder dramas, crime shows. In fact, uh, we, we like it as a society so much so that the longest standing TV drama right now is a crime show called Law and Order. Anybody a Law and Order fan? Oh yeah, how can you not? Uh, we like it so much that we even take the comedic approach to murder in shows like Only Murderers in the Building. Anyone seen this one? Yeah, Steve Martin, how can you not, right? And Martin Short. It's a great show. In fact, statistics will tell us that 23% of all current TV shows deal with crime, deadly crime. Now, why is it? Why is it that we're so drawn to this idea of crime, that we entertain ourselves with it? Perhaps maybe we are drawn to the darkness of it in some way. Uh, Perhaps maybe it's because it's an escape from our day-to-day. Perhaps it's because we seek justice in our lives and we can identify with the agents of justice in these shows, or perhaps it's because we can sympathize with the victims of these deadly crimes. But oftentimes when we watch these shows, more times than not, I would believe, we don't fall away or we don't walk away feeling a deep connection to the murderer himself, to the killer himself, right? And even subconsciously when we watch these shows, sometimes we might think, well, gosh, I'm just not that bad, right? There's a few bad apples in this world, but most people are, are good, right? And we come to our story today of Cain and Abel. It is the first murder story unfolding in human history. It's natural for us to see ourselves in Abel and not in Cain. But the reality of the story today is if we're going to see the glorious truth of the one Abel points to, we have to see that we are all like Cain in some way today. As hard as it may be to reconcile that in our hearts, we all have to see that we identify in this story more with the one who murders than the one who is murdered. And Cain is not some psychopath, right? He he doesn't come to us in this scene and we think, wow, he's that distant from us. Cain begins in this scene as a worshiper before he becomes a murderer. I can imagine Cain himself would never have imagined the fuse that was lit in his heart when he became indifferent towards God and his worship that led to the murder of his brother. The reality for us today as we engage with this murder drama is that we have to see that we all live in this land east of the Garden of Eden now, which means that this story teaches us that we all have to come to terms with the fact that there is sin crouching in our lives. And that's what we're going to learn today as we continue to following the story of Genesis is now that we're out of the Garden of Eden, is that to understand the power of God's grace is to rightly understand sin. Perhaps another way of saying it, our main idea today is this, that although our sin is great, God's grace is greater. This story will teach us this simple truth this morning, 
that although our sin is great, although sin is powerful, God's grace is greater. And our outline is going to flow straight from the text today. We're going to look at four aspects of this text. First, the sacrifice from our hearts. We're going to see what true worship looks like in the story of Cain and Abel. We're then going to see how sin is sneaky and how it appears here in this story, how we should take it serious because of its sneakiness. We're going to see the sweetness of God's grace that permeates through this text. And then finally, that's going to lead us to find salvation this morning. Salvation in the blood. Now, as we start this morning, let's just give a quick recap of where we are in the story of Genesis. We've been in this study now uh, for, for a little while, even though we're only in chapter four. Uh, we've been slowly making our way through the beginning of the book of Genesis, which is a book about beginnings. The word Genesis literally means origins. It's the first book of the Bible. It teaches us, as we've said time and time again, about the beginning of this world as we know it, how God created it to be. It also teaches us about our beginnings as human beings. And last week, we saw this in the garden, Adam and Eve in the fall. We witnessed what happened to them that caused them to lose their home with God. And Genesis 3 ends with them being exiled from the garden. And so now we pick up in Genesis chapter 4, we see a family formed. We see the offspring of Adam and Eve and their first children, Cain and Abel. And today, this story is meant to help us answer the question, what is life going to be like outside the garden? What does life look like now that we're out of Eden? What we find is that sin is not faded <laughs> now that they've gone from the garden. In fact, it's intensified. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the portrayal of sin as this cunning serpent that deceives Adam and Eve. And here in chapter 4, we're going to see sin is portrayed as this bloodthirsty predator crouching and desiring to roll over us. In Genesis 3, we saw that sin deceives and it causes shame and alienation between God and humanity. And here in Genesis 4, in just a moment, we're going to see that sin here goes a step further. It hunts, it enslaves, and it leads to bloodshed. The point today is this, that as the family of Adam and Eve move away from the garden east of Eden, sin is there. But we're going to find also that God is there as well. That he has not left his people. That he is still for them. That he wants to be involved in their lives. And as much as this passage is going to be a strong warning against the power of sin, like we said in our main point, it's also going to further reveal the power of God's grace for us in this life. Let's go jump into the text here. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the sacrifice from our hearts. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, which is a PG way of saying that they were married, okay? <laughs> and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, verse one, we pick up on this new life that Adam and Eve are now living outside of the Garden of Eden. And we see that in their marriage, they know one another and they give birth to their firstborn son and then to a second son. But notice the difference in how Eve 
relates in how Eve responds to the birth of her two sons. When Cain is born, she literally shouts, I have gotten the man with the help of the Lord. Perhaps what Eve's indicating in this declaration that she is looking to Cain as the male offspring promised in Genesis 3.15. That God has given me the deliverer. He has given me the one who will deliver us. The word Cain, the name Cain literally means successful, productive. And then we see that Abel is born and not much is said about Abel. Anybody the youngest child in here, you know what that's like, right? Your parents have a baby book and like you have like one picture in there, <laughs> you know, just happens, right? Abel is born and she names him Abel, which means vanity, worthless. See, Cain here is the older brother who follows in the footsteps of his father. He becomes a tiller of the soil. He is the heir. And then Abel tends to sheep and goats. Their names are no accidents here. Adam and Eve just didn't pick these out of a random baby book. In naming Cain, Eve is declaring here that she is placing her hopes on him for redemption. All the while in pastures far away from their home, God's grace is actually being revealed to the story of Abel. And what we find here is the story begins as a story of worship. It says in due time, what does Cain do? He brings fruit of the soil to sacrifice to the Lord. Abel also brings an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord, and he offers fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord's response is that he looks on Abel and his sacrifice with favor. But when he looks at Cain and his sacrifice, he does not look on it with favor. Now, the general conviction here, as we, we reflect on the story, is, is the difference is not in the fact that one brings an animal blood sacrifice and that one brings an agricultural sacrifice. It is that one brings of the very best of what they had to God, and the other one just, well, kind of doesn't. Cain just kind of brings here in the text his plain old vegetables, right? And his response is really the clue that gives us an indicator of why God did not accept it. Notice Cain's response. He doesn't respond to humility to God. He doesn't respond with repentance or forgiveness to God. He is angry at God. He has one of those how dare you moments to God. How dare you not consider my offering like you did my brother Abel? And the book of Hebrews actually gives us more clarification on this. Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was committed as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And then verse 6 teaches us that without faith it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This reveals something about the nature of worship, about the nature of sacrifice for us this morning. That is not, the problem is not in the substance of the sacrifice. The problem is not in the process of the sacrifice here. The problem is in the heart of the one who is sacrificing here. Their gifts were just a reflection of the inner disposition of their hearts. Cain may have an appearance of a worshiper of God here, but his heart is far from him. Cain may have a, a form of godliness here, but he doesn't understand the power of godliness. And it's reflected in the sacrifice in which he brings. He doesn't really give it much thought. Abel, on the other hand here, seems to indicate that he knows God. He, know, he knows God intimately to the point where he sees that God is worthy of his best that he can give. That is the disposition of his heart. And that's what sets these two men apart. Now, the first thing this teaches us today is in our origin as human beings, whether we're Christian here or not, whether we believe in faith or not, all of us are worshipers. Every single human is inherently a worshiper. We can't avoid it. 
Worship comes to us with the same ease as breathing does. That's because our hearts have things that we sacrifice to. Our hearts have things that we ultimately share our allegiance to. And the worship of anything other than God in the end is a worship of self. It's putting ourselves in the center of realities, whether we worship the pleasure another could give, the power of a career, or the comfort of money. We desire those things because we want them for us. At the center of our reality, the one who is on the throne is us. And so the question here, the choice we have from the very beginning of this is, are we worshiping God or are we worshiping self? See, Abel offers in faith because Abel understands who God is. Perhaps Abel had heard already, passed down from his mom and dad, the promise of Genesis 3.15, that there will be a deliverer who not only will wrestle with sin, not only struggle with sin, but will defeat sin, will crush the head of the enemy. And so Cain's, or Abel's response here is a response to salvation. It's a response to say, I know my God will deliver. Therefore, I offer this. Therefore, I sacrifice this. But Cain, on the other hand, is not responding to salvation in God. Cain is responding as a means of salvation. Cain is coming and saying, look what I've done. Look what I have to offer God. Look, look what I have brought to the table. In other words, Cain is coming from a place of self-worship. And as a result, we'll see that it puts in motion what ends up happening is a really sad, heartbreaking story. But the reality here is as we begin in this passage, we have to see that Cain's struggle is all of our struggles. The reality is Cain's struggle is our struggle because of sin. Is it so easy to turn what should be an act of worship to God into an act of self-righteousness? Isn't it so easy because of sin to masquerade what should be a direct worship of God because of what he has done for us into an act of self-worship. See, worship comes from a motive of the heart. It's not just about Abel's offering here, favoritism here. It's about Cain's heart that's being exposed. The Psalms teach us this way in Psalms 27. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and one thing I seek after, that may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is the sacrifice that comes from our heart, is it formed by faith? Is it coming from a place where we want to seek the God who is our deliverer? The God who is on the throne of our hearts. It doesn't come from a place from indifference. It doesn't come from a place of selfishness. It comes from a place where we're moved by God, where we seek after him, where we can say his love is better than life itself. We can say that it is better because of the joy and the pleasures of God, the new grain and wine that abounds. Worship always comes from the heart. And here we see that Cain's heart is actually far from God, which leads us to our next point, the sneakiness of sin. When our hearts become indifferent towards God, when they become far from God, this is what happens next. The Lord said to Cain in verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What happens next? Cain spoke to his brother Abel. He has the small talk. It's premeditated. He's already thought this through. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It begins here with Cain's emotions, right? Cain's emotions begin to get the best of him. It begins to take over him, and it leads him into this destructive place. He's angry. He's downcast because of this. 
Now notice that his emotions aren't necessarily what's sinful here. In fact, God, uh, emotions are, are a gift from God. Even anger can be a gift from God. Because anger rightly placed reminds us that there's something wrong with this world that needs to be set right. There's something wrong from outside of us. There's justice that needs to be served in this world. But oftentimes, that, that anger is coming from a wrong, not in this world, but a wrong within us. That there's something distorted within us. And that's precisely what is happening in this passage. There's something wrong, disordered in Cain's heart. And it's causing this fuse of anger to rise up in him. And then we see what happens next. But God gives him this warning in verse 7. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. This metaphor is so powerful for us this morning. He's saying, Cain, sin might seem like it's hiding itself, but it's not. It's, an, it's a predatory animal crouching. You know, when you see a lion crouching, you don't go up to that lion and say, oh man, look how cute and cuddly he looks, all balled up in a ball of fur. No. You don't look at that and say that's cute. You see a predator who's ready to pounce and ready to devour. And what does a lion do? A lion waits till his prey relaxes. And when the prey relaxes, he pounces. And God's warning for us here in his kindness and his goodness is to say, don't let your heart relax with sin. Don't let your heart grow relaxed with sin. There is a crouching line within your heart. Don't take it lightly. And sometimes we often do, don't we? If we're honest with ourselves, we say, well, it's not that bad. We kind of dismiss it. We have a casual approach to sin in our lives, and God is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, no, it's not something casual. It's a predator. And we need to understand that just as a predator does, if we give, it, give into it, once we feel like we're done with it, it's not done with us it will continue to devour and to take over every part of our life. It is like gangrene to the body. It spreads. See, sin never just quietly sits in the corner of your life. It crouches in the corner. It's sneaky, but its desire is to take over your whole life. And God's warning for us is to say, don't allow that to happen. Don't dismiss this truth. Because every grudge that we hold against someone, you know what that is? That's murder in a little ball crouching in the corner, waiting to devour. Every time we lust, that's a little ball of adultery. It's a little ball of an addiction to pornography that's just waiting to pounce. Every time we are filled with self-pity, that's a little ball of, of idolatry that's just waiting to overcome and take us. He says, beware of sin. It is not sitting quietly in a corner. Its desire is to spring up and take over your life. It will say to your soul, I'm not very big. I'm not very important. I'm just small over here, but it's not. Now, in God's warning here is he's teaching us something about how sin operates in the sneaky fashion of just uh, kind of methodically waiting till we relax to pounce. What do we do about this? How do we combat this sin in our lives? Well, let me leave you just with two uh, points of application on this point. Number one, have an honest awareness of the darkness of sin. Have an honest awareness of the darkness of sin in your soul. Uh, the Bible is very clear that if we say we have no sin, then we are deceived and the truth is not in us. It starts by having an awareness that there is darkness within all of us. 
You see, Cain didn't come to that awareness here. He allows sin to get a foothold in his life. And if you give sin an inch, it will demand a mile. Where are we allowing sin to get a foothold in our hearts? Where are we underestimating this beast in our souls? You know, one, one of the genres of movies I just cannot stand to watch, especially this time of year, are horror movies. Uh, not because I'm scared of them, although some of them are kind of terrifying, but um, it's because they're just so silly to me. Like, do people not just, do they not think in those movies? Like, in every single one of it, it never fails. They make the worst decisions possible. It's like, let me run away from this guy into an abandoned basement where the door doesn't lock. Like, that's a smart idea, right? Or let me run towards the creepy noise in the darkness with this flickering candle, right? Like, why do people do these things? It's like you look at them on the screen, you're like, you're just dumb. <laughs> like, you're making a stupid, a foolish decision. And you know what God's saying here to Cain and what he says to us is the exact same thing. Cain, why are you playing with fire? Cain, why do you not recognize that you are in danger? Cain, do you not realize that there is a predator on your doorstep and he is seeking to devour you? We have to become honest and aware that sin is in our lives. We don't need to be naive to it. We need to be honest with one another about the darkness that is in our souls. The Bible tells us this in Psalms, Psalm 19. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hiding faults. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me to the way everlasting. You see, the beginning of our fight with sin is to understand the depth of sin in our lives. And when we begin to bring that to light, we begin to understand the depth of our sins, then we can begin to allow the Lion of Judah, the King Jesus himself, to destroy that lion within us. It begins with seeing the darkness in our souls, but then it also is living in light of community. Living in the light of community. Being aware of the darkness in our souls, but also living in light of community. Look at verse 9. After Cain commits this murder, the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain does not uh, take responsibility for his brother here. He doesn't just kill Abel, but he also kills his own conscience here, right? God comes to him. God knows what he's done. And he says, where is your brother, Cain? And Cain tries to play like he doesn't know. He tries to pretend like, I don't know. I don't know where Cain is. I don't know where Abel is. I don't, I don't know what happened. He completely dismisses any responsibility for not only what he did before his brother. The reality is each one of us, we are our brother and sister's keeper. And this is one of the core things to our humanity, as we've said from the very beginning, that we were made to live in relationship with one another, created in the image of our very God, for the, created in the image of our God, whose heart is that we would consider, deeply concerned and consider the welfare of others. And we fail to do that when we live isolated from one another, then the battle of sin and evil will surely be won, but not by us, but by it. We are our brothers and sisters keeper. We are called to help one another, not ignore one another, not be indifferent towards one another, but as worshipers of God, see the value and glory in every image bearer that we come in contact with. And so our encouragement today from this story is really to not just fight sin on our own, but to say, I'm going to fight my sister's sin with her. I'm going to fight my brother's sin with him. 
And you know what? When we begin to join in the fight of sin with our brother and our sister, you know what it helps us? It actually helps us become more vigilant in our own fight. And so let me encourage you, church, live in light of community. Help fight someone else's sin and ask them to help fight yours. Don't join in this fight alone. Be your brother and sister's keeper. Now we get to the next part, which is really the sweetness of God's grace in this story. So we see that Cain comes, uh, first, seems like a worshiper of God, but his heart is indifferent, is, is far from God. And that leads him to give in to sin that's crouching at his door, that leads him to murder his brother. But notice how God deals with Cain. Notice how God treats Cain here. He doesn't come as this vengeful God. He comes as the wonderful counselor. He comes to Cain with questions, with questions of precision for his heart. Verse 6, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. See, notice how the Lord doesn't wait for Cain to act here. The Lord comes to Cain and he intervenes early. He comes down and he meets Cain. He doesn't just tap his foot from heaven and say, well, I hope Cain comes through for me. He comes down with questions. He intervenes tenderly here. He doesn't show up and say, Cain, how dare you question the way I receive my offerings? Do you not know who I am? No, he comes to Cain and he says, why are you angry? Before he ever gets to the place of saying, you need to do well, Cain, before he ever gets to the place of saying, you need to do this or that, he first says, let's get to the heart of the issue. Let's get to the motives. What's underneath all of this, Cain? What's causing this anger to rise up within you? He comes with such a tender heart, with such a tender voice to counsel Cain in his distress. And then even after Cain commits this murder and lies to God about what has happened, let's pick up in verse 12. And we see that God rightly does give a punishment to Cain for what has happened. When you work the ground, God says, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, Your, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What is Cain most worried about here? He's worried about his own life, right? He's still thinking about himself in the story. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And we see Cain live out his days. He has a family, and that family builds a city. And we see that, uh, as we continue in Genesis 4, that city, uh, we see evil continually happen. But even in the evil here, even in what happens here, God's promises remain true. And God gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth, at the end of this story. And, and the people from Seth's line begin to call upon the name of the Lord again. But notice here that in this story, that God does punish him. He says, it's from the ground you'll be cursed. There's bitter irony here. Because it's from the ground that Cain toiled in the soil. That he actually had fruit to offer to the Lord. 
The punishment is not only a loss of his livelihood, his ability to toil in the soil, but it's also a life of wandering. And Cain immediately cries out, this punishment is too great for me. And what we find here is something beautiful about the character of God. As one scholar puts it, God's concern for justice for the innocent, meaning his concern for justice for Abel, is matched in the story only by one other thing, his care for the sinner Cain. God's concern for justice of the innocent and Abel is matched only by one other thing, his care for the sinner Cain. Even in Cain's wrongly motivated and selfish plea, God answers him. And God gives him this mark. We don't really know what the mark was, but it's a mark of safety. We do know that. God promises to protect Cain. He promises to have mercy on Cain, which teaches us this morning that God is not just concerned for the innocent, but he is merciful to the unrepentant. And Romans 2 reminds us of this, that it is his kindness that leads us to turn from our sin and turn to him. Cain has not turned from his sin yet. In verse 13, he's still primarily concerned with himself. He is not concerned with the sin that he has committed. He is concerned with the punishment in which he is receiving. And when we turn to the Lord, we, often, we, we say in our hearts, God, our punishment is just, and we ask for forgiveness. But someone who doesn't turn to the Lord like Cain always believes that their punishment is not just. It's more than they deserve. And Cain here is blaming God. He is, he is saying to God, this isn't fair. And how does God respond to that? He cares for Cain. He cares for the one who's not listening to him. Even though he's saying, Cain, you can't come into my presence, he protects him. And this is a pattern for us to follow as a church. One of the hardest struggles in this life is for us to, to be able to have both truth in our lives and mercy. To be able to have both true justice for this world and also mercy for another. You see, God is telling Cain here, I have to tell you what you've done is wrong, Cain. There's punishment for what is done. We can't be intimate right now. But on the other hand, God is saying, I'm not disciplining you in ill will. I'm protecting you because I want you to repent. I want you to come back. That is the very heart of our God. That is the sweetness of his grace. And in our society, oftentimes people will say, well, you either have to fully accept me or reject me, right? There's no middle ground. There's no, there's no ability to say what you're doing is wrong, yet I still love you. But the gospel compels us to do such a thing because that is how God treats us. The greatest challenge for us is to be able to say, there is wrong in this world, but I bear you no ill will. There is wrong in your life, yet I care for you and I care for your best interests. This is the mercy and grace of our God and how he's extended it to us. That while we were yet sinners, while we rejected God, God cared for us. And he causes us to then say those who reject the Lord around us to not push them aside, but to care for them. To invite them into our lives. To extend mercy to them, just as he extends mercy to Cain. This also reminds us this morning that if God doesn't give up on Cain, if God is protecting Cain, if he cares this much for Cain, then he cares for you, no matter what you've done. He cares for you, no matter what you've done. And his heart here, his kindness in this passage, the, the sweetness of his grace is that he wants you to trust him. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to believe in the truth of his word. 
He wants you to offer a sacrifice from a heart that's been changed by him, to believe in faith, to seek the forgiveness that we have for our sins this morning. And that forgiveness comes because of salvation in the blood. You see, in Genesis 3, Jesus is the only one who can crush the enemy, the head of the serpent. And in Genesis 4, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is the only king who can defeat the lion crouching at our door. But Jesus is also the Lamb of God who will sacrifice his life and spill his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And the writer of Hebrews again helps us see how we should view this story in this crying out of Abel's blood in Hebrews 12. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, when we hear the blood of Abel in this story, we are to interpret it through the blood of Jesus. We're to hear the cries of Abel's blood. And what is Abel's blood crying out from the ground? It's crying for justice because an innocent life was taken. It cries because of his estranged brother who betrayed him and murdered him. But Hebrews reminds us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word a better word of justice. It's not a justice for innocent, meaning it's not just a justice for the only one who is innocent in Jesus. It is a justice for his enemies. It's a justice for us. It's a justice for Cain. Jesus' blood speaks a better word, meaning that when we think of the story, we think of the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, the only true innocent one, just like this story in picture form with Abel, was killed by his own his own family, his own people murdered him, killed him. And yet he went to the cross and he endured that pain and he went to the cross and he endured that suffering as a payment to pay the debt of justice. See, Jesus doesn't just identify with the ables of this world. He doesn't just have compassion and justice for the victim. He identifies with the cane, which is good news for all of us. Because Jesus' death pays for the murder of Cain, of Abel. Jesus dies in our place as well. Meaning that his blood speaks a better word. Meaning that his blood speaks a more powerful word. That this morning we can know the love of God and be accepted by God because a debt has been paid on our behalf. Because when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he endured the full wrath of God that the eternal justice of God was satisfied. And just like the ending of this story, where Cain is a wanderer away from the presence of God, when Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, cast away east of Eden from the very presence of God for us. He becomes the foreigner, the wanderer for us. And that's why the promise of scripture like 1 John 1, 9 is so sweet for us this morning as we come to our time of communion, we can trust in this promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is just that right now, before the throne of God, we have an advocate that pleads our case. 
that we have a God who is for us, that even when we fall, even when we give in to the crouching lion within us, Jesus is sitting there at the right hand of the Father, and he is saying, I have died for this man. I have died for this woman. Justice has been satisfied. This morning, you can have that hope. This morning, you can know the God who is worthy of our worship. This morning, you can have the king of all victory in your life, the one who is the lion of Judah who can crush that crouching lion at your door. And you can have the one who sacrificed his life for you, who died for you, who was raised to life for you, and who now pleads your case to the Father. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.